Welcome to Regenerative Medicine today. This is John Murphy, and it's my pleasure to welcome as our guest for this podcast, Dr. Anand Saroop. Dr. Saroop is with the NIH and specifically heads up the Neurobiology Neurodegeneration and Repair Laboratory at the National Eye Institute. So, Dr. Saroop, it's a pleasure to have you with us today. You're leading a new endeavor, as I understand it, at the National Eye Institute. Perhaps you could give us a brief introduction to your areas of interest and study. Thank you very much for having me here. I came to NIH, more precisely National Eye Institute, to establish a neurodegeneration and repair laboratory, and that was in 2007. Before that, I was at the University of Michigan for 18 years as professor. And just to give a little bit more background... My basic training has been in biochemistry and genetics, and I am fairly new, relatively new to the vision field. After training in Drosophila genetics, I moved over to human genetics and was trying to clone the gene for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, but we got scooped, and then I moved around and tried to figure out what I want to do and began working on X-linked retinitis pigmentosa. This was in mid-80s when I was at Yale as a postdoc, and I proposed a new strategy to identify genes for X-linked retinal degenerative diseases, and that got funded by NIH, and I became an eye geneticist. During the first 10 years or so, my lab primarily focused on two aspects. One was on gene discovery. Uh, That means to look for genetic defects in retinal and macular degenerative diseases. And I was also focusing on retinal differentiation, more precisely on photoreceptor differentiation as a basic science project. These two projects then led me to more challenging areas of research, which were towards age-related macular degeneration and also trying to find new treatment paradigms for these degenerative diseases. At the university, in the extramural program, that's what we call it, NIH, it is somewhat hard to take up new challenges as the funding is tied to specific projects. So therefore, I moved to NIH where I have more flexibility to initiate programs and I can take up roles that otherwise are not possible. We have established a group that now focuses on three different aspects of basic research, which are cell and developmental biology, disease mechanisms, and genetics and genomics. These three basic science projects areas, they lead to, they feed into actually, the three treatment paradigms that we are focusing on. These are on gene-based therapies. We are using adeno-associated viruses for gene therapy of uh, a couple of very interesting retinal degenerative diseases, including the one that I began my eye carrier with, and that is X-linked forms of retinitis pigmentosa caused by RPGR mutations. The second aspect is on small molecule screening to rescue the disease phenotype. And more importantly, for this particular audience, our focus has been on 
stem cell-based therapies for rescuing or repairing the disease phenotype. Very interesting. So I've had a chance to look at your website, and we will post on the podcast website the URL. I notice you have quite a large group that's pursuing these endeavors. Yeah, that is true. So I was given a sort of certain amount of funding to initiate this program, and we have recruited additional investigators as part of this group. One of the investigators, Dr. Tianzhen Lee, came from Harvard Medical School. Other is a new tenure track investigator, uh, Dr. Tudor Badia. He was recruited from Dr. Jeremy Nathan's group from Johns Hopkins. And then we also have a gene therapy expert, Dr. Peter Colosi, who is uh, part of our group as well. So in total, we have 50 to 60 scientists that are working in the group, again, focusing on all different aspects of retinal biology and disease. So I have to congratulate you. It seems like you have what I'd call a critical mass in terms of pursuing some of these important and very fundamental investigations. Yes, I think that is correct. And again, I have to emphasize that being in the NIH intramural program, we have somewhat flexibility with respect to organization of the group and the focus that we want to have. We have been able to sort of put together a group of not only personnel, but also equipment and resources, very cutting-edge sort of equipment from two-photon microscope to Illumina, Solexa, next-generation sequencing systems. So we, we do have that. And again, that was one of the reasons I moved to NIH. All very important resources in terms of what you're pursuing Also, in looking at your website, I see that you note that in humans, the retina supplies about 30% of the sensory input to the brain. I hadn't focused on the point that this is perhaps the highest ranking in all sensory inputs from a human. That is very correct, actually. Humans are very peculiar in the sense that we use our vision as the primary source of uh, sensation our complex neural functions like emotion and behavior are critically dependent on our visual stimulus. Actually, humans fear most after cancer blindness. In our daily lives, vision plays a very, very critical role. And that is not true in other mammals, actually, particularly, say, in rats and mice and dogs, uh, where other senses are equally important sometimes, even more important than vision. So you mentioned before that you have three principal focus areas in terms of gene therapy, small molecules, and stem cells. I need to stress to our audience that your studies are by design very fundamental, but in terms of looking forward, are there any of these areas more promising in the relatively short term than others to treating vision-related ailments? Yes, absolutely. So we have taken a sort of staggered approach, and what that means is that we are focusing on one particular aspect for treatment within the next two to three years, whereas the others are relatively slower and will take a little longer time. So the gene therapy is farthest along, as your audience might remember or might might recall, about two or three years ago, the three different groups, two actually in Philadelphia and one in U.K., were successful in treating patients with labor-cutting amaurosis by introducing RP65 gene. 
And that was a sort of pioneering effort. And these people who were blind since very early stage of their life, they were able to regain vision and were able to see and play and sort of do all the activities that a normal human being does. And this was a tremendous success for gene therapy. And I, or retina being a part of brain, it has really introduced a lot of excitement in the community, in the neuroscience community, actually. And retina is being used as a model for treatment using gene-based therapies. Rather, labocondromosis caused by RP65 gene defect is relatively rare. So we are focusing right now on a somewhat more common but still an orphan disease, which is X-linked form of retinitis pigmentosa caused by RPGR mutations. And as I told you earlier, that was the first project that I began my vision career with. And we are now finally able to reach a stage where we hope that within the next few years we will be able to introduce the gene in humans. Earlier this year, in fact, in January of 2012, we published a manuscript in Proceedings of National Academy of Sciences with scientists at University of Pennsylvania and Philadelphia and University of Florida and groups of Dr. Sam Jacobson and William Houseworth, where we were able to introduce adeno-associated virus carrying the normal RPGR gene into these animals, and that seems to be working at this stage. It's still somewhat early, but we hope that we will be able to take it to the next stage in the next year or two and apply to FDA for some early trials for safety and efficacy. That sounds very interesting. So I've heard some great outcomes in terms of various gene therapies, and I've heard some unsuccessful or maybe some uh, unhappy outcomes. What are the precautions that a scientist needs to take in terms of gene therapy to avoid problems? Actually, retina or eye is a very unique sort of organ or tissue. It's somewhat away and it's very approachable in the sense that surgeons can very specifically introduce the virus where it is supposed to go. So it does not really go in the blood circulation as much. And retina being a privileged sort of system, you could actually reduce the immune response as well. So, so far, the therapy in the eye area has been actually excellent with RP65. And actually, a lot of these patients have been carrying the gene for now a few years. It's been three or four years and there is no adverse effect reported. The adverse impact that you are talking about is related to gene therapy in other areas where one needs to be much more cautious. Thank you for explaining that. So another question that comes to mind is that I know with other types of cell therapy, there's some facts and at least some expectations that the longer the affliction has been in place, the more difficult it is to reverse it. So for the visual initiatives that you're working on, is this more applicable for people who have lost vision, who have deteriorating vision? I think you asked a very important question, actually. Gene therapy is good only when the cells are still there. If the cells have degenerated or died, you cannot do gene therapy. 
you cannot correct when there is no cell at all. And even small molecule-based therapy or drug therapy is also not going to be very good because in majority of retinal degenerative diseases, the photoreceptors, cell death that happens, uh, in some cases that is because of the defect in retinal pigment epithelium. In some cases, it's defect in photoreceptors. But whatever it is, when the photoreceptors die, you cannot use gene therapy and you cannot use small molecule therapy. So the only sort of approach for treatment you can employ at that time is the cell-based therapy. That means you replace the cells that have died. Now, that approach can be very successful in tissues which are non-neuronal, where the cells can function independently without really do whatever they're supposed to do. In case of retina, which is part of central nervous system, cell-cell contact, cell-cell communication is extremely critical. What that means is that if photoreceptors have died or if retinal pigment epithelium is dysfunctional and photoreceptors are dead along with that, these cells will need to have a very good contact and they need to make synapses with the other neurons in the retina in order for them to not only capture the visual information but to convey that to brain because after all there are areas in our brain that are going to interpret the information retina does not interpret the information as you pointed out right in the beginning 30% of our brain is devoted to the processing of this visual information so retina captures that integrates this information and then sort of does the first level of processing now it's extremely critical that the photoreceptor cells or retina RPE complex, if we are going to put that in the retina, then that must form appropriate connections with the neurons in the inner retina. And that will be a big challenge. However, we are very optimistic and this is the field of cell-based therapies is still in its infancy. We have a lot of challenges But within the last few years, I think major advances have been made. We can now make photoreceptors from not only embryonic stem cells, but we can also make it from induced pluripotent stem cells that are derived from adult somatic cells. So I think those advances, together with better basic understanding of synaptogenesis, that means how these cells form synapses with other neurons, is going to be uh, very important in making progress. But again, this probably is going to take a few more years compared to gene therapy. There's a good segue into the next area I wanted to explore with you, and that is, is how does one coax cells to be retinal cells? That is a question that we have been asking for the last 20 years. The basic research has given us absolutely fantastic leads. There are signaling pathways and transcriptional regulatory proteins that can direct these stem cells towards distinct neurons within the retina. And my lab has particularly focused on photoreceptor differentiation, and we discovered a transcription factor called NRL. So if you knockout NRL in mice, that means you lose this particular factor, NRL, uh, all rod photoreceptors are lost. And instead of rods, you now have cone photoreceptors, 
But if you put this particular factor in cones, you make rods. So this is a master transcription regulator. In addition to that, working with Dr. Douglas Forrest at NIDDK, which is also part of NIH, we have found that there is another very important transcription factor that Douglas has been working on called TR-beta-2, which responds to thyroid hormone. And that particular uh, transcription regulator is very important for cone differentiation and cone pattern formation. So we have found that these two transcription factors together, NRL and TR-beta-2, can generate three different types of cells, at least in mice. These are rods and a blue cone and green cone. So we are very excited about that, and we are slowly moving upstream of this pathway to figure out how these particular transcription factors are turned on and pioneering work in many different laboratories, including that of Connie Sepko and Tom Ray and Bill Harris and many others. We already know a number of factors that are very critical and number of signaling molecules that are extremely important to do that, to make photoreceptors from stem cells. But still, there are a lot of gaps in this knowledge, and we have begun new studies, actually, to mark these cells at different stages where we can then isolate these cells at various stages of differentiation and try to understand what is going on. But we do have gaps. We can make the photoreceptors, but we don't know what exactly is going on. We know the beginning and the end, but we have gaps in between. You're certainly making progress, and in fact, relative to these points, I see that some of the publications from your group in the past year have been specifically addressing these points. So you've uh, introduced to us the strategies to rebuild the photosensor in the eye. I know your focus and strategy is on, well, I'll call it natural repair, but I know other scientists are trying to build artificial photosensors. Do you have any observations about approach A versus B here? Artificial photosensors or artificial retina, I think, is going to be extremely important, but that will be like a light detector. That means the resolution of images is not going to be very good. Our natural retina is just an amazing computer, and there's no way, at least in the near future, we can reproduce that high degree of precision and resolution. But Again, for people who cannot see, that is amazing because now you have light perception. You can at least see some images. What we are trying to do is we are hoping that over the next several years, working with people in very different areas of research, including nanotech and you know, nanoscientists, including biopolymer uh, experts and biomedical engineers, people working in other areas of vision research and outside vision research, we'll be able to construct what I call 3D, uh, 3D construct of outer retina. What happens is that when we introduce photoreceptors alone in a degenerating mouse retina, these photoreceptor cells, they express right kind of proteins, but they do not make the real sensors, which are outer segments within the photoreceptors. And what that means is that we are not able to detect all the photons and all the information that exists out there. 
to generate outer segments, we have discovered that retinal pigment epithelium is extremely critical. Actually, one of my senior fellows who will be joining your department, Igor Nesankin, his work on a particular molecule called DNMT1 has shown that the signaling from retinal pigment epithelium is critical for the generation of these outer segments. So what we are hoping to do is to make a construct where retinal pigment epithelium and photoreceptors are put together. But they have to be on some sort of artificial surface, something that may be biodegradable or some sort of biopolymer or biomaterial. And so we have been having discussions during the last year and again early this year at a meeting which was organized by USC scientists under the sponsorship of Backman Foundation on age-later macular degeneration. And there, there were extensive discussions as to how we could make a 3D construct of outer retina that can be then surgically implanted in the dying or dysfunctional retina of individuals who are going blind. Ultimately, what we would like to do is we would like to sort of put all of these natural cells in vitro to produce a complete retinal construct, and that may be in my own lifetime. Very interesting and certainly very promising as well. As we uh, look forward, any thoughts about what the short-term future holds? I've been very fortunate in having a wonderful group of scientists and postdoctoral fellows and students with me and uh, resources to do some of the work that we have been doing. I feel that within the next few years, we will have at least gene therapy for some of the rare orphan retinal degenerative diseases, more common diseases like age-related macular degeneration and diabetic retinopathy will require a little bit more effort, and I feel that it'll be within the next decade we will have some major advances and hopefully give hope to people who are going blind. My own father actually has age-related macular degeneration. In his one eye, he has geographic atrophy. In the other eye, he has coronal neovascularization. And for CNV or coronal neovascularization, we actually have some treatment, but still it's not perfect. And we are hoping that by the time people of my generation reach that stage or age, we will have treatment for these more common blinding diseases as well. Well, I thank you for sharing your accomplishments and your vision with us today. As we conclude this podcast, I'd like to remind our listeners you can reach us at mail at regenerativemedicinetoday.com. We welcome suggestions, but I also remind you we cannot diagnose medical problems via the Internet. And as we conclude, I'd like to thank the McGowan Institute for Regenerative Medicine that sponsors this podcast series. Until we meet again with another exciting interview, thank you for listening. 